And God said, starting in verse 3, let there be light. And children running. That's day six. That's day six. This is going to be a longer reading. So my sermon will be shorter-ish. But I just want you to give yourself to the reading. Who are you talking about? (laughs) Chris, don't be talking about short sermons now, man. (laughs) Uh, In the beginning, okay, so, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw it, and it was good. And then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening. And there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. And let them be, uh, for, let them be for signs of, and for seasons and for days and years. And let, them be lights in the, let there be lights in the ex- expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw it, and it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let their earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it and it was good. 
And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and of all, uh, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created a man, in his own, a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and of every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said to them, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed and fruit in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life in it, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the hosts in them or of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed that seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from his work that he had done in creation. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. All right, join me. Time machine, we're in it. 4,500 years ago, all right? There's no electricity. Just making sure you understand that. We're back then. You and I, our family and friends, And we are frail, and we are tired. We were just freed from the most powerful empire in the world, and at that time the world probably had ever known. A dynasty of kings had enslaved our people for 400 years. And those kings and the people called those kings gods. We were exhausted, exhausted from a harrowing, though miraculous, escape, but are now in this, what we think now is a long desert journey, but it's about to be a lot longer than we thought it was. Moses has told us that this, this God of gods, this true God, was the, the one who delivered us, and we've been liberated, uh, uh, by, uh, liberated from the power of, 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 our, of the enemy that, that enslaved us, and he has thwarted our slave masters in the sea. And now we're sitting around campfires or watering holes, throngs and throngs of us, not quite sure what to do next. We are free, but we are wandering and do not know. And we know and have heard about these local desert communities that in Mesopotamia where we've heard the rumors of uh, how violent they can be to outsiders. And we are clearly outsiders. And then the grumbling among us begins. Grumbling among our friends, our families, even in ourselves. Moses had gone up to the mountain to talk with God about something. He hadn't been around. He's coming back, they say. But the throngs of us are being tempted towards impatience and are starting to get scared. There is talk of immunity. There's talk of even preferring to be enslaved. 
in Egypt than being here. People are starting to distrust their own experiences of this freedom, the most miraculous dividing of the sea, the, the crushing of the enemies, and any hope in this land that was promised to them. And desperate for meaning and doubt about the reality of who God is and what he's done, many of us start to look around at the other gods around us, the deities of the Mesopotamian gods or the gods of Egypt. And now we're sitting around trying to orient ourselves, orient ourselves to this new world. And it is precisely at this point that you would hear, coming from Moses, getting through the community, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now back to Winston-Salem, 2023. The first subject of the first sentence of the first book of the Bible is God. That God created the universe and all that is in it. God is addressing in his mercy and his kindness and his power and his truth this broken, battered, and often belligerent people. And he says to them, in the beginning, I created all he is setting the foundation for all of reality and their particular reality and our reality too. I'm delighted to be in Genesis 1 through 3 until we get uh, to Advent because it says things about the foundation of our reality. We will be exploring many topics, foundations of our life with God, the image of God in, in us and our neighbors of the foundations of relationships, sex, gender, marriage, sin, life and death, curse and promise, work and rest. All in light of God's power and his love, his generosity, and his willingness to speak to us about these things. If you were at the congregational meeting, you know that this season in the life of Redeemer, uh, we're describing something as like securing the, the beautiful and strong foundations of Redeemer. And he showed you a picture of his brother's older house and uh, previous, old, previous house, not previous brother, older house. And uh, it was pictures of the fortifying of the pylons that were right next to the, other, to the older pylons, just buttressing the, the, the power that for a hundred and some odd years held up that house, just coming alongside of it and doing it. We're in the same kind of place. By filling out our well-prayed-through and hopeful staffing plan, by upfitting and repairing our beautiful, wonderful old building, increasing our generosity, not just to the church, but from the church to the world, all to pivot and embody more of our mission to be transformed by God's grace into faithful servants of all. And so what better place to hang out than in Genesis, a book about foundations? I started the time machine for a reason. <clears throat> to remind you that the original audience may hear this in very different ways than we do, including myself. Many folks in our day, including me at times, started a very different emotional, spiritual, and theological place when it comes to the, to the first words of Genesis. We try to make it a scientific textbook primarily, or a philosophical treatise. Some of us try to use it as a worldview battering ram. It, is, it has something to say about all those things, of course, and we will cover many of them. But for its original hearers, 
It is the very foundation of reality and who God is in his grace and in his power. And it's a light that exposes the brokenness of the people there and of the world, sin in us and in others. But it's all given in love. I'm going to have three shorter things to say about what I think in general it holds, and then three applications for us as well. The first thing you see from it is he, God, is the foundation of everything. And this is a radical, radical, radical statement. That there is one God, the true God, the God of all gods, and that he is the foundation of all of life and purpose in the world and in the universe. These wandering freed slaves, trying to understand a new life, a new reality, living under tyranny for so long, and yet now amid these wilderness dangers need to hear, I am the one true God, the source and foundation of all reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God wants to tell this ragtag group of freedmen that he is, in fact, the source of everything that is. The power of his word uh, was, 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 was brought forth for the delight of his people. He made all things. It's a statement about foundations and its reality. And it's a statement that orders our very lives. God is the screenwriter and the director and the executive producer of creation. He's the lead actor. He has the first line, which is a lengthy monologue. He creates the set, the stage, and then creates the actors. In a world that tells us that you, that I, am the source and the foundation of your life, your own desires, your own sense of self, your own hopes, your longings, a world that tells us that that's the main thing, the very creator of your reality, the scripture both gently and forcefully says, no, no. It is a gracious no, a kind reminder that that you are his and you are not your own. You are, of course, a delight to him, a a very bearer of the image that he has put forth in the world. It's just not only about you. You get to be swept up in its beauty. You get to be delighted in all those things, but it's still not about you. It involves you. It is for your good. It's just not about you. In fact, the scriptures teach that that we, when only these things are ordered right, will you see your truest self when you are not the center of the universe or your universe? You are not the foundation. So the first thing is that he made all things. He's the foundation of all reality. The second thing is that he formed and filled everything. You, you may not have seen this, but the way this thing works is that day one, two, and three are the forming, and day four, five, and six are the filling of those things. Day one, there is light. Skip to day four, it's the creation of sun, moon, and stars. Day two is the sea and the sky. Day five is the fish and the birds. 
Day three is the land and the plants. And day six is the animals. And you got to love how many times it says creeping things. And then humans. That's how the whole thing works. Is this, that there's this forming and this filling. There is God. He made all things. He made us. We are his. We are not our own. And this can be bad news because it does, in fact, claim to have a reality that disrupts the primacy of the self. Of your own and my own making of meaning in the world. But this is really good news because it disrupts the primacy of the self. Because anyone who's lived for self too long knows how puny and myopic and unsatisfying and ultimately hellish it is. More on that later. And this one's a little tricky. You'd have to know some ancient Near Eastern context to this. So I'm going to give it to you. He actually made our gods. Let's go back into the time machine. We're sitting there as the nomadic vagabonds. We've known the customs of Egypt and their gods. We're starting to see what Mesopotamia looks like, and we had heard rumors about their gods. And since this is the Red Sea event, you know, God doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot of stuff right now. I don't mean he, he and Moses are up there talking about something. Our people are starting to flounder. Lack of trust and some heart wandering. The lure of having a connection to these gods that seem to be at least, you know, manipulatable. Get them to do what you want. And then God comes down, God uh, sends Moses down to give us this message. And we're like, wait a second. Yahweh, in the beginning, is the all-powerful, our liberating God says he made all the gods of Egypt and Mesopotamia? See, here's how this works. Sun, moon, sky, plants, animals, each of them have categories, both in, in, um, in Mesopotamia and Egypt, where each of those are gods. So, for Mesopotamia, sun, Shema, or Shema moon, Yachrik, sky, Anu, sea, Enki, plants, Ishtar, animals, Lula. In Egypt, it's Ra, Konsu, Horus, Nun, Osiris, and Seshat. The watering holes and the campfires are now kind of a buzz about things. Wait a second. We're tempted to worship these gods, and you said you made all these gods. Okay. We thought we could like, get some good fortune or some safety or at least better relationships with our neighbors, you know, if we you know, kind of just joined in with them. But you're saying you made them all. Yahweh is felling the idols of the land and the ones that are starting to emerge in their hearts. And then they're like, but did you hear that? He says those gods in the right place are actually good. They're good things. There's nothing wrong with these things. They're made for our delight, our beauty, and his glory. He made them good. They just don't make good gods. In his grace and his love, he's shining an eternal spotlight, exposing their temptations for idolatry and their eventual idolatry over and over again, not too far off, we're getting the golden calf thing. He's right-sizing the stuff of the universe so that we can receive them as gifts and not worship them and be ruled by them as gods. God is the one foundation of everything 
who formed and filled all of heaven and earth, who made even our gods. Now we're going to come out of the, um, out of the time machine. We're going to go to about 2,000. Okay? Uh, my colleague and I were brandly, brand new minted pastors. And this was um, in Charlotte during the dot-com boom. All of our peers weren't just making six figures back then. They were getting bonuses for six figures back then. And I was like, could have chose a different grad school. To go out socially with our friends in the church was a burden for us. My colleague had it worse than I did, not because he had two children, but the expenses of two children. And they were struggling. Their cars were old, their house was very modest. And one day, in a beautiful honesty before God and him, was sitting in tears before her husband as they were struggling again. The car broke down. They still had medical bills to pay off. And she looked at her husband and cried in this beautiful, honest frustration, why won't God just give us a minivan? Now, we're in the 2000s, we're in the early aughts, late 90s. For those of you who don't know, who don't know, there was a time when the minivan was the epitome of vehicular family life. So practical. Those doors... The middle bucket row for the car seats, room for a stroller, extra room for play dates, and optimum French fry removal capacities. About a year later, his wife, who is truly amazing woman, some in our midst actually know this couple, wonderful, wonderful human being, a saint if you will, she gave a testimony at church. She started with her brokenness and her weakness and her idolatry. And that she said that she had grown bitter towards her friends, but mostly towards God. And she had put such value in this minivan idolatry that it was a place for security for her. And worse, a symbol of whether God really cared for her or not. She was able to repent by God's grace and the truth that God made all things and we don't need to have other gods. And was truly liberated from it. And about a few months later, after a major thing, and I'm not saying these are causal, I'm just talking about reality here, a person in the church bought him a minivan. And the rest of the story, as she was telling it, said, <sighs> she ended up, I don't know exact words, I don't quite remember it, she said, y'all, God gave me my idol. Still, that's why I remember it so well. You see, something that I wanted was, was not bad, it was good, but it was bad because of the weight and the, and, the, and the worth I put on it and how much I tied it to who God was and how he cared for me. And she's like, you got to still pray for me, it could still become an idol again. But God gave me my idol. That's all that God is doing in this. He's saying all these wonderful and beautiful things that people are tempted to worship, they're so amazing, they actually point to me and I made them. And I actually made them for you and your enjoyment and for my glory. Because I get great glory when those things are in right relationship to you. Okay, now in 2023, the same is true for the vagabonds in 4,500 years ago, for my friend in 2000, and for us. And so I have three points of application. The first one is this. 
You cannot create your own world. And the good news is, you don't have to. In a world where your profile pic has to have the right lighting, background, and now I know angle for the chin. When, you, when we curate images for likes and popularity, where we only show filtered, curated pictures of our lives and only the best part, where we live in a world that's like celebrating of never let them see you sweat, never bring your mask down, where you have to be a self-made or well-rounded person we're in a world that cares more about branding than character and receives beauty and strength to be commodified and not cherished and savored. We don't have to put on the mask or the salary that is a mask or the success story that is a mask. And this is not just digital world. This is day in, day out in all of our worlds. And all of these things can be good things, rightly ordered. He gave it to us in love, for our delight, for our enjoyment, but not for our worship and idolatry. We don't need to, we don't need to cultivate false, false personalities, our personas. And ultimately, if we do, when you give something worship, it rules over you. And it leads to more brokenness. So just enjoy as a gift from God. Second one, there's only one God so we can put all the gods in the right place. Just an ascension of the first. Please don't get on our high horses about the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and all those gods that are out there. Status and success are moon gods. They require achievement and flawless performance, but they, are lying. they lead us to lying and cheating. Wealth and abundance are sun gods that offer shiny things but they create price gouging and paltry rages and burglary and discontent. Safety and st stability are sky gods, usually sailing off into the sunset kind of sky gods. They only provide anxiety and fear when they're not rightly ordered. Comfort and pleasure are definitely the vegetation gods, promising eternal satisfaction, but only provide temporary titillation. Image and body are our animal gods that promise health and acceptance but lead to bulimia or laziness or self-contempt. All those things can be good and healthy in their own right if they're rightly ordered before God. Friends, there is but one God and he is good and he's made all these things. He's saying to us and to them, you will not find rest in them. I made you, I made them, I know what's best for you and I know what's best for them. Give me your worries, your efforts, your hopes, your trust. Not because I need it, because you flourish most in that right relationship with the stuff of this world. And lastly, lastly God liberates us when we are captive to these lesser gods. It's the whole context of this passage. It's the whole context of this passage. All of us and everybody you know creates idols 
And all of us, everyone that you know, have been enslaved by power and corruption and their lure. Though this passage does include physical enslavement, I'm broadening it to spiritual as well, but those are connected. History proves that humanity's idol of greed and power and dominance is all too real and leads to enslavement like it does for Israel and Egypt, and most horrifically in our own nation's history. It is all too real that even people who claim the name of Jesus would let the idol of greed and power to enslave another. And so it's not always physical slavery, but there is no exception when it comes to the slavery of spiritual idolatry. We have all been idolaters, except one. Unless God had intervened then to Israel by his power and his grace, we would all be pursuing lesser gods. And unless he sent his only son to vanquish the reign, the tyranny and the reign of these lesser gods, we would all be lost on our own. But he did. Because the story of the Bible, as we read and as Susan referred to and was in our liturgy, that, that, that the eternal son was there at creation. And that he would come in flesh, as the perfect one, in whom we could see the invisible God, full of grace and power and majesty and justice and mercy and kindness. And it is this Jesus who has made flesh the Son of God that we receive all the forgiveness that we need and gain all the power to resist the lesser gods as they are so tempting. And I'll close with what Paul says about him. He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were made, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead that in everything he might be preeminent or be the biggest or the most or the most hallowed. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, to creep, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us be enthralled, infatuated by you. Father, oh, help us prioritize our loves, our worship. Um, you made such a beautiful world, and it is tempting at times. And so help us. We know, we know, we know, but we don't know always or every time that um, that, that is not where life is. So teach us again to trust you in the middle of it, even when you're away and seem far. We pray in your name. Amen.